the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Living a life of forgiveness. That's what we'll talk about today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Join us. You have been forgiven much. Do you turn around and then forgive others as well? That's the question we're asking here today, or rather God's Word is asking. Welcome. This is Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. We're continuing our survey of the book of Luke. We're in chapter 17 today, looking at verses 1 through 19, living a life of forgiveness. Now, what does that look like? Let's join Pastor Gary Wagner today and find out. Living a life of forgiveness. Over the past two Sundays, we've looked at the parable of the shrewd manager and the parable of the rich man in Lazarus. And we saw that the concern of these two parables was to describe to us the nature of the life in the kingdom of God, how Christ's disciples are to live and behave on this earth. And now the sayings and pronouncements and the miracle we have here in the 17th chapter of Luke are concerned with the same thing. When you read them on the surface, they may appear as if they are simply a loose and unrelated compilation of the sayings of Jesus. But that is not the way Luke does things. There is actually unity here. He links things together on purpose. And this series of pronouncements and parables and miracle in chapter 17, verses 1 through 19, are stories that Luke has linked together to teach us that life in the kingdom of Jesus is a life of forgiveness. Life in the kingdom of Jesus is a life of forgiveness. It is a life of being forgiven And it is a life of forgiving. The true disciples of Christ, citizens of Christ's kingdom, are a forgiven people. And as a result, they are a thankful people who are then a forgiving people. In other words, in the kingdom of Christ, within the Christian community, in the home and in the church, there should be, if we are healthy believers... A lot of forgiveness going on every day. That should be the mark of our daily lives in our homes and in our churches. Forgiveness. Always looking for ways to seek forgiveness and looking for ways to grant forgiveness. Now, since we're going to be talking about forgiveness today, I believe I need to make some clarifications because there is a lot of misunderstanding about forgiveness of sins out there. So first of all, forgiveness is free to the receiver, but it costs the giver. 
Forgiveness is surely not an easy thing to give. It's easy to receive most of the time. It is free to the receiver. It is costly to the giver. Now, how do I know that? Well, we all know that because of what it costs God to forgive us. It cost him his son. And what did it cost Jesus to forgive us? It cost him his life. So understand, if we are going to be a forgiving people, it is going to cost us something. We're going to have to swallow our injury. We're going to have to swallow hurt feelings. We're going to have to swallow that which first comes to the surface when someone hurts us, and that is the desire for revenge. All of these things must be swallowed. Because forgiveness, though it is free to the receiver, is costly to the giver. Second, forgiveness always involves two parties, the offended and the offender. The one who is sinned against, who needs to grant the forgiveness, and the one who has sinned against the other person, the one who needs to ask for the forgiveness. Because we as sinners broke God's law, we must seek forgiveness from the one against whom we have sinned, and that is God himself. Since God is the one against whom we have sinned, we don't go to some priest or some counselor or some preacher to get our sins forgiven. We go to the one against whom we have sinned because that one, the great offended God, became man and bore in himself the cost of our forgiveness by taking on himself the punishment that our sins deserved. So what is it that that implies to us? It is that forgiveness on our part will require great and healthy condescension on the humbling of ourselves rather than putting ourselves above someone who has sinned against us. Now, the third clarification may just pinch us a little. And that is that forgiveness is not accepting a person just as he is. The idea that forgiveness is unconditional love or unconditional acceptance of another person is a popular view of much of modern psychology that has crept into the church. And one major influence on Christians has been a book written by David Augsburger entitled The Freedom of Forgiveness. In that book, he says, to give forgiveness, to give wholehearted acceptance to others is what we are called to. There is no forgiveness without genuine acceptance of the, of, of the other person just as he is. Forgiveness is acceptance without exception, end quote. You see how dangerous that is? Everyone today talks about how we are to give unconditional love to each other. The Bible forbids us to give unconditional love to one another. We are not to unconditionally love each other no matter what we do. And this idea of unconditional acceptance of another person without exception is something that I truly hope you already realize is an unhealthy consideration. 
and it is ultimately a condoning of evil itself. Augsburger, in his book, uses Jesus' own words on the cross to try and prove his belief. He said, on the cross, Jesus accepted the people as they were. In fact, he says, he forgave them. He forgave those who crucified him because they didn't know what they were doing. You remember that story? Well, actually, I hope you don't. Because that story is not in the Bible anywhere. It is not in the Bible anywhere that Jesus forgave anyone while he was on the cross. Remember, throughout his life he could say, like he did to the paralytic that was let down before him in the house where the roof was taken off, I forgive you of your sins. But he didn't say that on the cross. He prayed to God to forgive the sins of those around him. He didn't forgive them on the spot. He had in mind what he was about to accomplish by his death on the cross and his burial and resurrection. And he says, Lord, forgive these people. It's a prayer. He's not forgiving anyone. He is asking God to forgive them. And when when did God answer that prayer? He answered it on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people were saved when Peter said, you with wicked hands have crucified him. And these people were so pierced to the heart that at least some of them for whom Christ prayed were converted, even though they participated in his death. And that was only after they were convicted of their sins and repented of those sins. Remember Stephen? The first martyr prayed, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when did God answer Stephen's prayer? It was at the conversion of the Apostle Paul, who was actually holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen. After He was convicted of his sins. So you see, forgiveness is not accepting a a person just as he is. Biblical forgiveness is not unconditional. We must not forget there is a necessity for atonement for sin and of confession of sin and of repentance. All of that is necessary in order for forgiveness to take place. There must be the shed blood of Christ... There must be on the part of the sinner a confession of his sins and repentance and faith in Christ as his Lord and Savior before forgiveness takes place. There is no basis whatsoever for defining forgiveness as some do today as unconditional positive concern and unconditional love. Now, I'm going to quote quite a bit from Jay Adams today because I don't believe anyone says it any better than he does. And I want to recommend to you three books that he's written that you should all have. The first is Competent to Counsel. The second is the Christian Counselor's Manual. And the third is More Than Redemption. And in that book, he actually takes the doctrines of the Christian faith 
such as the doctrine of forgiveness, and he shows how to use them to counsel people. But anyway, they are competent to counsel, the Christian counselor's manual, and more than redemption. And here is what J. Adams says. Forgiveness never ignores sin. Forgiveness never tolerates sin, accepting the other people, other person as he is. Rather, forgiveness is forgiveness of sin acknowledged and repented of. Forgiveness focuses on the fact that there was an offense. It does not turn away from this fact, but it deals with it. Psychological doctrines of acceptance are cheap substitutes for forgiveness that deny the need for Christ's atoning death. Men cannot accept one another apart from that. Accepting someone as he is makes no demand on the person. It is unrealistic. It is naive. Men are sinners and cannot be handled by mere acceptance. Sin is against God. And it isn't possible to be neutral about God who has been offended by our sin. Non-judgmental attitudes actually condone and encourage sin. To accept a sinner just as he is means that God was wrong in sending his Christ to die for sinners in order to change them. God took and takes sin seriously. So seriously that he punished his own son with death for sin. If God punishes sin, we may not accept sinners just as they are. To say that God forgives sin is true. But in saying it that way, we must never lose sight of the fact that it is sinners from whom the liability of guilt is lifted. God punishes persons and he forgives persons. Some try to distinguish between sin and the sinner by saying, well, God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Beloved, that kind of separation is not possible. God sends sinners to hell. They, not their sin, are punished eternally. Christ, not the sin he bore, suffered and died on the cross. And it does no good. To obscure the facts with trite sayings. Sinners need forgiveness. Unquote. So forgiveness is not accepting someone just as he is. God sent Jesus to die. To change the person. And not leave him just as he is. And then there's another clarification. And that is that forgiveness and guilt are inseparable. Now, that may seem obvious to you, but I guarantee you it is not obvious to a lot of Christians. I have actually heard Christians say that guilt is an unhealthy thing, and therefore they will, not, they will do almost anything to try and not feel guilty. Of course, that means that normally they have to either rationalize their sin or they have to try and cover it up in some manner or another. One of the reasons people have this view is because of a book like Freedom from Guilt by Bruce Naramore and Bill Counts. The Bible teaches us that forgiveness and guilt can never be separated without peril. As Adam reminds us, 
Forgiveness invokes guilt. It presupposes guilt. Guilt is culpability for wrong done to God and to man. And all the words of the Bible for forgiveness in Hebrew and Greek have to do with lifting the burden of guilt, with canceling the debt charged to our account, with removing what was held against us. And yet writers like Naramore and Counts try to lead us into freedom from guilt. And they claim they are being biblical. Adams goes on. Well, what is the purpose of guilt? Naramore and Counts say it serves absolutely no good purpose at all. However, the Bible teaches us that it is something we all experience. God has made us as human beings in such a way so that we have a sense of guilt when we are guilty of sinning. Awareness that we have sinned leads to a feeling of guilt. You have a conscience by virtue of the fact that you are created in the image of God. And that conscience triggers this feeling of guilt. And it does so to warn us that something is wrong. And that there's something that must be dealt with. We feel guilty when we sin. Because we are guilty when we sin against Almighty God. What do we learn about David and God in Psalm 51. Do we learn that when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed in battle so that he could have her as his wife, that after all that, God came and smiled non-judgmentally on David and said, David, bless your heart. I accept you just as you are. You are my child. Don't worry about a thing. Is that what Psalm 51 tells us? No, as a matter of fact, Psalm 51 is a very emotional psalm about David's tears and about David's intense grief over the fact that he had sinned against Almighty God. God was not non-judgmental toward David. God chastened his conscience and led him to repentance and to change by making him feel guilty. And God drove him to himself. So you see, from the beginning to the end, the Bible stresses the need for sinning Christians to become aware of and feel sorry about and repent of their sins. James sums up this biblical position as simply and clearly as any biblical author. And there are very, very few preachers today who even address this. In James 4, 9, and 10, it says about how we are to handle guilt, be distressed and sorrow and cry. Let your laughter be turned to sorrow and your gladness to dejection. Be humble before the Lord and he will exalt you. And beloved, as you can see, that's not out of the Old Testament. That's New Testament. Now, there's one last clarification that we need to make before we get to Jesus' words in Luke 17. And this may even pinch just a little bit more. And that is that forgiveness is not apologizing. The Bible nowhere commands or recommends that we make apologies. Nowhere. Does it ever say when you sin against someone, you should apologize? Beloved, it says no such thing. 
And you might be sitting there asking, well, what's wrong with making apologies? Well, let's see what Jay Adams has to say. An apology is an inadequate humanistic substitute for the real thing. To say I'm sorry is a human dodge for doing what God has commanded. And since it is, God, it is man's substitute for God's requirement for forgiveness, it has caused a great number of problems in the church. By replacing the biblical requirement for dealing with separation between people, it has allowed separation in the church to continue unchecked. So you see this thing of apology is a cheap substitution for what God requires of us. And what does God require of us? To forgive each other. Adam continues, confession is always linked with seeking forgiveness. This is what all the great prayers of confession do in Scripture. Apologizing breaks that link. As long as Christians continue to say to those whom they have wronged, I'm sorry, or words to that effect, instead of, I have sinned against you, will you forgive me? As long as they receive that natural response, oh, that's okay, or something similar. The real solutions to the many difficulties that could have been reached through forgiveness will continue to be bypassed. The church will labor under the burden of resentments and bitterness on the part of its members. An apology is wrong, not only because it is man's inadequate substitute for God's revealed method of writing sour in personal relationships, but apologies elicit an inadequate response. When one asks, will you forgive me, to use a football phrase, he has punted the ball. The ball has changed hands, and a response is now required from the one addressed. The ownership of responsibility has shifted from the one who did the wrong to the one who was wronged. Both parties, therefore, are required to put the matter in the past. And the proper response is, yes, I will forgive you. Adams goes on. Like God's forgiveness, human forgiveness is a promise that is made and kept. The promise, the response, yes, I'll forgive you then, is a promise that entails quite a commitment. One to which the forgiven brother and God may hold him to. And one that, if kept, will lead to forgetting the wrong. Not to forgive and to forget, but forgive to forget. And reestablishing a new good relationship between the parties involved. So an apology is an inadequate substitute because it asks for no such commitment. And of course, it gets none. To say I'm sorry is nothing more than an expression of one's own feelings. To say, I have wronged you, and then ask, will you forgive me, is quite another thing. So when you simply say, I apologize, there is no healing of the relationship. When you simply say, I'm sorry, it demands no response, and thus, there is no healing, end quote. Now remember those clarifications, beloved. And let's now go to Luke 17 and see what Jesus teaches us about how to forgive and when to forgive one another. 
The 19 verses that Alex read are very easy to outline. Three basic points and three sub-points. Three basic points. Number one, Jesus says we must be willing to forgive. Number two, Jesus accepts no excuses for failing to forgive, like, oh, I don't feel like it, or I need more faith, or I'll forgive when so-and-so shows me more improvement. And thirdly, Jesus says forgive because he commands it. And that'll bring us to the end of our time today here on Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Thank you for joining us today. It's our hope and prayer that we've been able to encourage you in Christ and stimulate your walk in Him. To address questions, comments, prayer requests, or concerns, please call or write to us. We'd love to talk with you. 408-866-5607 is our phone number, 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do, reformedheritage.org. Real simple, reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by, reformedheritage.org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB, post mailbox, 402, and the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, 95032. That address can be found on our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, simply call 408-866-5607. Copies of today's program are just $5. Mention today's date, and we'll get a CD out to you. And please remember that we are listener-supported, which means when you link arms with us financially, we're able to continue the ministry here on this station. It's a great way to study God's Word together, isn't it? And we'd love to continue to do so. Would you prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to partner with us? We'd love to hear from you. Again, won't you call 408-866-5607 or reformedheritage.org. Sunday services, by the way, if you'd like to join us, are 2 in the afternoon. We're located at Lone Hill Church, 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org. Again, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. Further information can be found again at reformedheritage.org or by calling 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, God bless. (music) 